But as we open our service today, I would remind you of a saint from a few hundred years ago. It's a man named David Brainerd. David Brainerd was born on Easter Sunday, April 20th, 20th, 1718. He was a missionary to First Nations peoples in New England, which is an area of kind of the northeastern United States. His health was frail, but his legacy, the legacy of his mind and his ministry has persisted into our modern age, largely thanks to one of his good friends, one that you will all likely be familiar with, named Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards, after Brainerd's death, published Brainerd's rather detailed journals because he thought they would be of value to the church. And one of these entries from October 11th, 1746, which was almost exactly a year before his death at 29, Brainerd, who at this time was plagued by illness, he wrote this. October 11th. I was in a comfortable frame of mind, wholly submissible with regard to life or death. It was indeed a peculiar satisfaction to me to think that it was not my concern or business to determine whether I should live or die. I likewise felt or peculiarly satisfied while under this uncommon degree of disorder, being now fully convinced of my being really weak and unable to perform my work. Whereas at other times my mind was perplexed with fears that I was a misimprover of time by conceiving I was sick when I was not in reality so. Oh, how precious is time, and how guilty it makes me feel when I think that I have trifled away and misimproved it or neglected to fill up each part of it with duty to the utmost of my ability and capacity. I think Brainerd realized something that we often miss, and particularly in crazy and busy seasons like we have at Christmas time, time is such an incredibly valuable commodity that we just cannot afford to waste it. And particularly that we must use it not just in good pursuits, but in the best pursuits. We must, as Brainerd says, fill up each part of it with duty to the utmost of our abilities and capacities. This means acting in such a way that God is glorified, participating in intentional and active Godward action every second which God gives us to be able. We know from our last message in Genesis that as we focused on Cain's interaction with his brother Abel, that Cain had something of a worship problem. His heart was more concerned about the things of his own estate than it was about God's glory. This led to disastrous consequences, both for Cain and for his brother Abel, as we know. But this morning, we move forward from Cain, though not too far forward. We follow his lineage, his offspring. And I would invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 4. And we will be looking at verses 17 through to verse 26. In Genesis 4, 17 to 26. Cain knew his wife, 
and she conceived and bore Enoch. Then he built a city. He called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad. And Irad fathered Mahujael. Mahujael fathered Methushael. Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, the people began to call on the name of the Lord. This is God's word. Again, as seems to be typical, Genesis doesn't concern itself with many of the minutiae, the questions that tend to arise in our heads, and one of them I want to deal with real quickly here, and it's the one that I have heard already probably half a dozen times. So Cain moved to the land of Nod and had a wife. We are told he knew his wife. But how does he have a wife if he had been banished from where he came from, from Adam and Eve and their family? I wanted to deal with this because it's important that we recognize that God did not go on creating new people and new nations. And the reason why that's important, and we just need to have it in our head, is that to do so, God would have gone on to create new people and new nations, and he would have had to either create a new holy people that were right with God, or he would have had to create new sinful people. And we know that there have been none holy since Adam, so God would have had to go on and create something and create them as not good, create them as sinful. And we're told elsewhere in Scripture that we are all of Adam's race. We all share one bloodline. Acts 17.26 is one of many examples. It says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. And remember that throughout all of this early history, we're not given much in the way of timelines. How long was it before Abel was killed? Most of us, just from the feeling of the story, that we assume that it's some hot-headed 20-somethings. 
But when you live to be a thousand plus years old in those days, a hot-headed 20-something might have been 70 or 100. We don't know how old they were. We do know from Genesis 5 that Adam was 130 when he fathered Seth. And for a couple who was commissioned by God to be fruitful and multiply, three children in 130 years is not exactly moving quickly on the being fruitful and multiplying spectrum. There is almost definitely other children, sisters, perhaps even brothers born in between the time of Cain and Abel's birth and the murder of Abel. Seth was the first son after Adam and Eve lost Abel, but he was very likely not their third-born child. Cain may have even already been married at the time that he killed Abel. And yes, Cain likely married his sister. This would be problematic and even illegal today, but it was not so in a time when the world was populated by one immediate family with near-perfect genetics and the biblical mandate against marrying your siblings was still a long way off yet. So I wanted to deal with that one just off the hop. It's kind of a sidebar to what we're actually getting into today, but it's important for us to realize that our God has not created anything as sinful and that God has indeed brought us all down from the line of Adam and Eve. And that is important for us to know because our God has not created anything as wicked. He has created everything well. So coming back from our little sidebar, we have kind of a two-pronged message in our passage this morning. First, we have this ongoing theme that we have seen right from the beginning of creation, of God's provision and care for mankind, his ongoing concern for his creation. And this continues even amongst the line of Cain. And Second, we have the theme of this progressive march of Cain's family line to the sinful drumbeat laid down by Cain. So looking at that first point, God's provision, remember when Cain had been punished for murdering his brother, Cain was bemoaning the severity of his punishment. God, how could you do this to me? They're going to kill me. God still cared for humanity's first homegrown murderer. God said, I will not allow them to kill you. I will mark you, and you will be safe. He place, places his protection upon Cain. So even though Cain had just murdered his brother, God was still looking after Cain, and this continues on. God looks after Adam after he sins and falls in the garden. God looks after Cain after he kills his brother, and then Cain's lineage carries on. They were the offspring of a wicked line, and God even cares for them by bringing from them some incredible innovation that we here today are still benefiting from. 
you and me here today are still benefiting from the lineage of Cain. That Cain, such a wicked lineage, out of his family would come benefits that would last throughout the rest of mankind. But I mean, we shouldn't be overly surprised about that. We know that even from the most wicked regimes and nations in the world, we still have innovations that have persisted from them that we still use today. Most of you, if you've read the no news, will be familiar with the drug methadone. It was, it's now used as a treatment for opioid addiction, also used for painkillers for people who are likely to be addicted to opioids. Well, methadone came out of Nazi Germany as a, we don't have enough opium, so we need to come up with something new. Out of a wicked regime comes something that is good. Out of the Soviet Union, we had the first mobile phones, and we now all have mobile phones in our pockets. And out of Cain's lineage, we have the first city builders. Most of us live in probably what would have passed for a city at the time. We have the innovations of animal breeding. We have the innovations of music and metallurgy. How could such a lineage of wickedness provide such good things that would then echo down through all of humanity to even today? I mean, I think of music in particular. Music is bedrock to how we worship our God today. And yet, it is one of Cain's descendants who is identified as a father of musicians. And all of that should point us back to something that we see in Genesis 1. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Every human being, man, woman, and child, created from Adam and Eve's lineage, we all are bearers of God's image. And part of this image, part of what God has communicated to mankind by creating us in his image is the ability and the inclination towards creation. We are a race of humanity that we like to create things. And although our creation is always dependent upon his creation, when we engage in creation, we should be exercising a gift that is pointing us towards God. I am creating something because I have been created. And they, I say should because as we can see in Cain's lineage and from many modern examples that we have today, we often manage to forget the creator who created us to be creative. Although Cain was a liar and a murderer, although his offspring were set on a wicked trajectory 
God, by his grace, still uses the wicked for his purposes. Just as Pharaoh was raised up to be used by God to display his power as he rescued the Israelites, or the Pharisees were used by God to facilitate the crucifixion of Christ, God works all things together according to his plan and even uses the unjust for the sake of those whom he justifies and for his glory. So God still uses and still, by his good grace, brings good things even amongst the wicked. But the second and greater thrust of our passage as we come to see that while God does still use the wicked in the development of the world and according to his plan, the wicked will not be absolved of their deeds by their own quote-unquote good works. Just because good things have come from Cain's line, the trajectory, how we would remember Cain's line would not be for out of Cain's line came music and cities and animal husbandry and all of these metal-created things. That is not how we remember his line. Their line is remembered for their wickedness. And as I see all of these positive contributions in the midst of a wicked people, I still see a people just like Cain. I see a people who even in the face of so many good things and worthwhile innovations still, as Cain did, refuse to acknowledge God rightly. They refuse to worship their creator. That was Cain's problem. The entirety of the creation narrative, a narrative where we have to remember these men and women in our story here are only a few generations removed from the creation of the world. But this creation narrative is a story of God's abundant provision and care and how he has cared for his people. God has made all things, and in particular, as James would much later note, every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. These good gifts were bestowed upon mankind in creation, and they even continued to be bestowed upon humanity as they grow further and further and further away from God. As Christ said in Matthew 5.45, Your Father who is in heaven makes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends His reign on the just and the unjust. This common grace, these good gifts, God's own self-revelation to all of the world, even as Tim read earlier, the witness of the godly, all of these things serve to remind a faithless world of the one in whom the whole universe holds together, in whom we live and move and have our being. He exists and no amount of burying our heads in the sand will change that. All mankind know that to be true, although many suppress the truth. And that makes the fact that so many choose to reject God, hardening their hearts to Him, it makes it so 
inconceivable to us that God has provided so many good things, provided for his people so well, and yet still you would reject him. People, because of their sin, have been able throughout all time to reject and turn from God, even just two generations removed from the Garden of Eden where they were created by God. Think of how many generations of God's people saw the most incredible miracles. They walked through an ocean split in two on dry ground and then just a few short years later are turning from him and worshiping other gods. Sin, wickedness, turns our hearts to stone. It hardens our hearts and only God can soften and replace our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. As I think of Cain's ongoing family line, Proverbs 22.6 is brought to mind. Most of you will know it. Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Should also be familiar to Deuteronomy 4.9. Only be on your guard and diligently watch yourself so that you do not forget the things that your eyes have seen. And so that they do not slip from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and your grandchildren. The sad thing is that Cain's line evokes these calls to communicate the principles of faith and godliness to future generations, not as an example to be emulated, but of a cautionary tale. We think of this teaching our children and our grandchildren about the things of godliness, and we go, this is what we ought to be doing, but Cain's refusal to worship God, his self-focus, his sinful pride, those two are communicable attributes that he is passing along to his family. He's passing along a desire to focus on self and to worship anything else but God. And it is a whole lot easier to communicate sinful habits than it is to teach righteous ones. While you or I cannot leave a faith to our children as an inheritance. We can't give them faith. We can, and we hopefully do, leave an inheritance of training and instruction that might be used by God to help and shape our children, ushering them towards the God that we ourselves worship. But conversely, we also can lay down examples that will act as stumbling blocks to children in our care. Here too, God is more than capable of saving our children in spite of our poor discipline and our poor instruction. But we want him to be using the positive instruction that we are giving them. But Cain's family line follows Cain's own pattern of worshiping self and anything else besides God. And as we see, hopefully, after Christmas, the week after Christmas on New Year's Day, we'll have another message that focuses on another seven-generation family line that this one is played off against. We have seven generations from Adam through Cain. 
and then we have another seven generations from Adam through Seth. And this genealogy, tuck it in the back of your mind because we will also see it come up again in comparison against Seth's line. Cain, in his pattern, he was cursed to be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. In Genesis 4.12, you will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. What's the first thing we see him doing? He goes to the land of Nod, literally wandering eastward, and Nod is literally wandering. So he goes eastward, away from God's presence, and he says, I'm not going to be a fugitive. I'm not going to be a wanderer. I'm going to build a city. And that's the first thing he does. It feels like another act of defiance from Cain. I am going to be a wanderer. No, sir, I am going to build a city. Fine, you won't accept my offering, but you'll accept Abel's? I'll kill Abel then. You curse me to be a fugitive and a wanderer? I'll wander and build a permanent city in the east, away from your presence. And here begins the lineage of Cain. And that whole genealogy comes to a head with Lamech. And we have these three sons that were named as these patriarchs of great innovation, animal husbandry and music and metallurgy. But Lamech is where this whole passage really points to. He is the seventh in the seven-generation line. And just a little fast forward so you can realize who we're comparing to, the seventh of the seven generations through Seth is Enoch, who walked with God and did not die. We'll get to that later. But we have Lamech. And the picture that we are given of him is not at all flattering. The very first thing that we hear of him, Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada and the other Zillah. We have our first bigamist marriage mentioned in the Bible, and we'll see throughout Scripture that many men throughout Scriptures are seen taking multiple wives, and the most notorious probably being Solomon, who in 1 Kings 11 we are told Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Even the great King David, Solomon's father, had at least eight wives that are named, and then we are told that he goes on to take more wives and concubines. But interestingly, these bigamist or polygamist marriages and tendencies, I don't think we should be surprised to see that they only get these men in trouble. They become Solomon's great downfall. And What we should recall from Genesis chapter 2, remembering Genesis chapter 2 is set pre-fall, before sin entered the world, so being pre-fall, it is descriptive of how things were created to be. It should be seen as a pattern for how things are meant to be. Genesis chapter 2, the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother 
and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Notice he said father and mother, not father and mothers, and hold fast to his wife, not his wives. And, I mean, this is the same passage that we usually first come to when talking about how marriage is meant to be exclusively between a man and a woman, but it is also where we should come to wherein this first kind of archetype of marriage, it's the example that every other marriage is meant to be built upon. We have one man and one woman becoming one flesh. And yet in the fall, right away, we start to see the fracturing not only between the relationship between God and man, but between man and wife. Adam and Eve throwing each other under the bus and... This eventually leads to Lamech, who takes two wives. He defies the example found in the first created couple. He defies the good plan of God, and then he goes on to boast to his wives. He says, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. The way that this is built, it's a little poem by Lamecca, boasting of his own violence. So he exalts in his violence. And while most of us today would look upon Cain as a cautionary tale, even the world would look at this and see that Cain is the bad guy in this situation, Lamech intentionally identifies himself with Cain. But the first thing he does, he demands his wife listen. This is an echo back to the curse that comes upon Eve. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Lamech speech speaks harshly to his wives and details to them his violent exploits. This defies the gentle and kind-hearted and loving way in which Scripture teaches us that a husband ought to treat his wife. So he boasts to them of this, and then second, he boasts that he has killed a man for wounding him and a young man for striking him. And that violates a commandment that is made explicit later in Exodus 23 of if there's harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burned, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. It's like for like. It is this practice that has existed through almost every culture throughout the years of reciprocal punishment where the punishment ought to fit the crime. But Lamech boasts in his violence. This inferior transgression of wounding him or striking him that he has gone above and beyond. Above and beyond, not only did I strike this man back, I killed him for hitting me, for wounding me also recognize that this is a man who, again, would be traceable family to Lamech, being only seven generations on from Adam and Eve. And then thirdly, and probably most chillingly if we see it, Lamech invokes the memory of his forefather Cain. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. This revenge of Cain it was a gracious provision by God in the midst of Cain's punishment for killing his brother. 
God says, I will protect you. You will be avenged sevenfold if anybody kills you. It was a provision by God for Cain in his wickedness. That sevenfold vengeance was God's promise of protection on Cain in spite of his transgression against God for the murder of his brother. And yet Lamech adopts this mantle of revenge on himself and he wears it as a badge of honor. It was never meant to be a badge of honor for Cain that he had this sevenfold revenge hovering over his head as a protective device from God. It was a, I'm protecting you in spite of your wickedness. And then we have Lamech who takes it upon himself and now instead of God bestowing this protective thing upon Cain, now you have Lamech holding over himself a protective vengeance that he would violently avenge himself. And envisioning, this is all boasting to his wives, and envisioning, envisioning the situation where Lamech is boasting to these wives, commentator Gordon Wenham says, if Ada and Zillah watched with pride as their sons developed husbandry and music and metalworking, they must have listened with horror to their husband's violent bloodlust. Imagine these mothers of sons likely being proud of their sons for all of these developments, and then they are called to listen to this violent story of what Lamech has done. Again, we aren't given his wife's reaction. Perhaps they were as wicked as he was, and they were equally thrilled. But as I said earlier, this seven-generation genealogy of Cain is going to be contrasted with this genealogy through Seth. And that's why in the closing of this chapter, and still included in this chapter, we have this camera shift back to Adam and Eve. Verse 25, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. The thrust of today's passage, what we have to leave here with, is that to disobey and to reject the Lord is to set both oneself, as Cain did, and one's family on a trajectory that is compoundingly wicked. Unrepentance at the murder of Abel, his refusal to worship God in the moment where Cain is rejected and Abel is accepted. That all compounds and moves along and becomes Lamech who boasts in the killing of a young man in his prime. As we sow wickedness, we should not be surprised if that is the fruit that our lives display and then our families would display. Although God's common grace upon mankind will still sometimes provide joys and commendable innovations, the greater focus, the only really true and worthwhile focus, 
you'll realize that our author kind of skims over the fact that out of this line we have all of these innovations. The focus is that at the capstone of this passage, at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. For all of the life-changing innovations that came out of Cain's family line, you'd think that that would be just something to glory in, but it is through Seth's line that would lead to people calling upon the name of the Lord that we have the commendable status. Adam's problem, Cain's problem, our problem is a worship problem. If we allow the created, whether that be physical idols or family or money or good name or good gifts of God, even of our own selves, if we allow these things to replace and to displace God from his rightful place at the center of our affections, then our trajectory and the trajectory of our families turns in a dangerous direction. We may still benefit from God's goodness and his patience, we're told that God has delayed his judgment upon the world. But our trajectory becomes godless. It becomes increasingly wicked. To tie it together with that quote from Brainerd at the beginning, he said, we must fill up each part of our time with duty to the utmost of our abilities and capacities that we must act in a way that is God-glorifying, that is intentional and actively Godward with every second that God gives us. This is a man who died at 29, who used his whole life in missionary service to First Nations peoples, and his life was fraught with illness, and he died of tuberculosis at a young age. And he was content with whether he would live or die because he knew that he was driven and focused on worshiping God and giving God every second that he was given. Time and our lives, they are not morally neutral. There is no equilibrium to be found where we can do just enough righteous works to balance out the wasted or the wicked hours. So... We need to be calling upon the name of the Lord. We need to be developing, like Brainerd did, this kind of holy discontent, this holy drive to do well, to use our time well, to use our time not only on good things like music or animal husbandry or metallurgy, all of these things, good things, good gifts of God, but it was when people called upon the name of the Lord that the the positive really came into play. We must focus on the best thing, which is to give glory to God. Imagine for a moment if Cain and his family line, who had developed these innovations, if they had developed these innovations in a God-glorifying, God-worshipping setting. That would be truly a thing to praise God about, but as it stands, that becomes a footnote in the pages of history because that line did not call upon the name of the Lord.
it is not going to be easy for us to spend our lives calling upon the name of the Lord. Perhaps we come from a family line like Cain's where we look around at our family and we have family who is godless on all sides. It's not going to be easy to call upon the name of the Lord in such a situation. Even if that's not our experience, we do know that we live in a godless world and nothing about this world is going to encourage you to call upon the name of the Lord. Nothing about this world is going to encourage you towards godliness. Only God can reorientate our hearts whether we are raised up in a godless home or just that we live in a godly, godless world. Only God can reorientate our hearts to make what we think and what we say and what we do a value that we might worship Him and worship Him rightly. This is repeated time and time again throughout Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 1, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship. Or to church in Rome, Paul said, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think of yourself with sober judgment according to the measure of faith God has given you. Or in Philippi, it is God who works in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. I would encourage each one of us to take the time, even as we are in probably the most God-sensitive time of the year for our godless world, to look upon your lives and ask if you have placed your faith in the one, if you have called upon the Lord, and then you can look upon and you can encourage the people who have done good things. People in our community that are doing good and positive and even righteous seeming things because of the spirit of Christmas. We are caring for one another. We're loving one another. The box hampers for Santa's Anonymous and for whatever else are filling up. And our world is all about the Christmas spirit and loving one another. But now is the time to tell people that no amount of loving one another, no amount of Christmas spirit, no amount of food bank donations, no amount of insert good Christmassy thing here will earn you right standing before God. There is no balancing the scales. That the difference between Cain's line and Seth's line is calling upon the Lord. And no amount of Righteous deeds can earn a pass into heaven or salvation. That is earned by Christ and given by Christ. Remember that Abel was counted as righteous because of his faith and Cain unrighteous because of his faithlessness. It is by grace that we have been saved through faith. So we must use our time well. And to use it well is not to just do good things. To use it well is to glorify God in all that we say and all that we do. It is to declare the gospel. Now is the time 
that we ought to be declaring the gospel. If you aren't familiar with evangelism, now's a good time to start because you can get your feet wet when people will actually, you know, maybe half-heartedly listen for the first little bit because, well, it's Christmas. But we ought to be evangelizing not just at Christmas but year-round because there is gospel and good news to be had. Good news to be shared. And as we call upon the Lord, as we become a people who in every area of our life worship Him, we will bring glory to God. And we will be living as we ought to live in a way that we will be most satisfied and we will leave instead of, as Cain did, a legacy of faithlessness and wickedness that only compounds throughout the years. We might even leave a legacy of faith for our family that even if they should go astray, that legacy can still serve as a beacon, as a light upon the hill that God may use to remind them of their heritage in the Lord. We are not guaranteed that our children will come to faith, but we surely should not be putting stumbling blocks in their way. And as we continue to worship God as we continue to call upon the name of the Lord throughout the rest of this Christmas season and in the year to come, we ought to be doing so with a mind of a legacy both personally, our individual lives, corporately as families, in our family lines, and corporately as Elk Point Baptist Church as people who have called upon the name of the Lord and that nothing else and no one else is our primary focus and the primary object of our worship. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, our God, as we have looked upon the lineage of Cain, we pray that we would be warned of the dangers of worshiping anything besides you. That we would be warned of our own fallen tendencies to glory in the created instead of the creator. And Lord, we confess that we have sinned and we have done these things. We have allowed the created to become more important than you in our own hearts and our own lives at various times. And Lord, we ask that you would forgive us of this. We ask that you would convict us of areas in our lives where we have set up idols in front of you. Whether that be idols of industry or idols of family or idols of any good thing or idols of wicked things. Lord, anything that has taken your place at the forefront of our hearts and our minds, let us see it and give us the strength and the desire and the willingness to tear these idols down and to set you up before our hearts and before our minds that we might worship you and glorify you rightly, that we might call upon your name and we might call upon your name in truth. That we might call upon your name individually. We might call upon your name 
in our families and corporately as a church. And that as we do so, that your name might be glorified in all places, at all times, and wherever we would go. Lord, we are blessed to have church families here from all over the world. So Elk Point Baptist Church, both through the families here and even through our online presence, we have access to the entire world. And Lord, may we propagate what's going on in our own hearts, a desire to worship you wholeheartedly and only you. That we would not be distracted. That we might glorify you for the good things that by your common grace you have provided for us. But that these things would serve to drive us to worship you and no one else. Lord, we commit each one who is here today into your loving care. We ask that if there is any who have been hearing this message, that they might be convicted by your Holy Spirit. And if they have not trusted you as their Lord and Savior, if they have not known Jesus Christ as their one and only hope and truth in life, that they might confess Jesus as Lord. And Lord, we pray you would go with us, and that as you go with us, that we would take your gospel wherever we would go, that we might call upon your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.